Um, don't really have an open. Checking the inbox. Nobody's emailed us. Okay. We can make up an email. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> well, we just have to act like we're getting hundreds of listener mails and be like, oh my God, it took a long time to sort through all the listener mail this week. Uh, yeah, so we picked out a few choice things. Uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, Lucia from Huntington Beach, California had a question. Yes, her question is, what are we going to do about all this oil? Can I put it in my car? <laughs> is, is, it, is it recyclable? Like, as they take it off of the surface of the ocean, uh, are we going to be able to use it? That's what I'm most concerned about is this was, you know, very valuable crude, and now it's not going to get used. That's really the, the issue here. It's not the death of sea life. It's not keeping me personally from being able to surf for months now it's the oil yeah I, i'm just so worried that it's not gonna get you know burned up in an engine what's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything like kids with decoders discover It's really, really crazy, though, Um, because I remember, let's see, this was like Saturday. Uh, I didn't really hear about it until I think, or maybe I heard about it Saturday night, like on Twitter, and then Sunday morning, the news could only cover this, because like the the weekend news here, one of the anchors is a big surf guy, Mm -hmm. so this was the most solemn I have ever seen. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he looked like he was on the verge of tears and i don't even think he comes down to huntington to surf but they've got like you know the u.s open of surfing is on huntington beach yeah um well and there was some big event going on there over the weekend it was an air yeah, was show an air or show. something and uh, that's what it, air show that's the first uh thing that i saw on twitter about it was like images from a plane flying over the air show i don't think it was a plane in the air show it was like a cessna or something that was flying around getting footage of the air show from above it might have been a drone i don't know hmm. but that's when they like look down and they're like oh look at all this <laughs> Look at look at all this. It's just yards from the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, what's all the this crazy, on the surface of the water? <laughs> they like told everyone, you know, uh, the the south side of the pier. Um, you know, we got piers out here. Uh, pretty lucky. Nice. Uh, the south side of the pier is like closer to the oil spill, so they were telling people avoid the south side of the pier. Okay. Um, there were surfers right on the north side of the pier. Like, it's it's a pier. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Water flows between. <laughs> so there's like a there was a boat shot of a boat going by 
and like looking at the water you couldn't really tell how close it was to the water you're like is this an aerial kind of i don't know um but then they just pan up and there's surfers like 20 feet (laughs) yeah this oil uh so so not not great surfing in an oil slick do you have to wax your board more or do you just not wax it at all i would imagine more but you got to use the comb too which that's that's a ripoff. Uh, I ordered a you know wax comb because I was like I probably need this. The, the there's like the flat edge on it. Yeah, that's to scrape everything off. Yeah. Um, but then the comb is supposed to be so you can kind of put some uh, put some grooves in there. Yeah, yeah. Give you so a, the water. give you a little bit more directional mobility. Mm-hmm. Which okay, I'm not good enough to (laughs) so when you just slightly shift your weight on your back heel you know you're going to cut back into the wave and if you slightly Mm -hmm. shift to your toes you're going to cut back away from the wave yeah you're talking going rail to rail yeah uh but the the cone i went to go put it like put some grooves in the wax the first time i waxed this board which is my first um first board my to own and uh first hard top as well like you know, hard shell, not not the soft top. Yeah, uh, epoxy we call it in the in the com- uh, community. Um, scratched up the top, scratched up the, the comb, scratched top. it up. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay, no more of this. Um, maybe I was pushing too hard. Yeah, you wanted to dig some permanent grooves into the board. <laughs> you just yeah. scraped the, all the finish off and got down into like the styrofoam underneath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was a used board so that was okay um we found this used one and i didn't really you know know what to look for when going to purchase it the guy's like you know you can check it out i'm like it's a surfboard i mean that's what you said it was <laughs> it's yeah. not a miniature model <laughs> um and so i didn't really check it so i don't know for sure if it was me but the first time taking it out i noticed along the nose and like the right side it was like cracked Mm. along the rail pretty much the whole like maybe 10 inches and uh so then i was like oh great like i don't know did i do this like the first time taking it out um but just got like some we asked somebody uh who's like an old guy in the parking lot because uh, they know how to surf. Yeah. And obviously, no. if you're doing it that long, you know how to make repairs and everything. You just take so a little asked, bit of resin out of your bong, and you just <laughs> you just rub that shit in there. Just rub that shit in the crack, that black tarry resin out of your bong. You just slather that shit up in there, and that'll hold. Yeah, if you ever need advice, though, in a on surfing in a parking lot, look for the old guy with the rusty van. Oh, okay. You don't want, like, the... 2019 yeah 2020 you want the guy who's been escape. driving the car that's been completely like rusted and oxidized by the saltwater winds from the ocean right yeah he's you want the person who can scoop up the oil off the sand and right put it right in the car. right uh he gave us like some silicone stuff but then we got like boat repair epoxy mm-hmm. stuff and that's held perfectly fine there's like a pressure crack on the top too which was not me i'm pretty sure um and yeah it's like never washes off silicone like rubs off (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah like it's good for 
making a seal against a surface at which water might splash up against it and you don't want water to get in somewhere. Mm-hmm. But like if it's surrounded, it will just peel off like like, you know, rubber cement or whatever. It just peels away if it's yeah. if it's too much surrounded by water. Even <laughs> that's part of the deal of it being uh, hydrophobic is that <laughs> it will actually, the water will separate it from the surface that it's supposed to be adhered to because <laughs> it doesn't want to be around water at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was also, it's kind of hard to tell too. Like, I'm not great anymore at telling if people are, like, one, I don't like people making fun of anyone. I especially don't like them making fun of me. So I can't tell if somebody's like making a joke or not. Okay. We're trying to because we asked them, you know, what to do about the crack. And uh, he goes, well, you need to check if it's cracked all the way through. And I was like, I don't. How do you do that? He goes, well, you suck it. <laughs> and I'm just like, OK, is this is that what you do? <laughs> are, you, are we being rude? Yeah, here? <laughs> is this is this to see if a, if dump some noob will go suck on his board and you'll laugh. Yeah, at him yeah, when he does it. Yeah, and then he takes a picture, and I'm on all the message boards. You're memed. <laughs> yes, uh, that's a fear, being memed by the surfing community. This guy sucks um, at surfing. Yes, uh, which I probably do, um, but now I won't know for months. <laughs> There's only one surfing spot. <laughs> well, you can't go south. Like, how far am I going to go? San Diego? That's go to, too far. Go to Laguna. That's that's going to be hit by the oil. Oh, yeah. Uh, go uh, to... Uh, we go, have to go, go up north. Go, go to, like, Mavericks. Get some big waves. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> um, we, but we all, we're going to have to go, like, around Long Beach, probably, up to, like, maybe Torrance area. So it's like an hour drive or something. What am I... An inland liver? Yeah, you're supposed to. That's because you're supposed to wake up at like two a.m. See what the swells are doing, and then you get out there as dawn is breaking. You're on the beach, getting ready to go. You know, scoping out where the breaks are happening because you're gonna have a full day of it. <laughs> we do actually do a full day. <laughs> I swear, I'm out there for like five hours, uh, which is not recommended. But it's so cold. Yeah, yeah, it's too cold to get in. Um, no, the wetsuit works fine. But anyways, um, so we have maybe 144,000 gallons leaked, uh, this weekend into the ocean. Thoughts? Um, it's, I don't think it's good. Back to you. Yeah, it's, uh, not great. It also has fanned out over an area of 5.8 nautical miles as of yesterday. The the worst part, too, so the oil, bad, surfing, yes. Um, but the worst part is there's like, like I don't know if it's protected, but there's some marshland right behind. Yeah, it's behind. like wet, protected wetlands that are part of the beach area. There's like over 80 different species of birds that that nest there and all that kind of stuff. And it's just flowed right in there. Yeah. I was reading. It's like one of the most densest, uh, native habitats of different organisms live in on any part of the California coastline is just in that spot. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's super 
nice over there. We've never walked through it because like, I don't know where to park for it. It's like we have, uh, you know, the there's Huntington Beach, which is like owned by the city. And then there's Huntington State Beach, which mm. is a little bit farther south of it. And we go surf there. Um, fewer people like Huntington Beach. One, I don't like the Huntington crowd. We lot of lot of chuds over there. All those Hollister folks. Yeah, that's like the region where people are like, you know, surfing is not a crime, and <laughs> they voted against Newsom because he <laughs> wanted people to not gather in groups. Um, but the the state beach, like, I think that's the parking lot for the wetlands because there's mm-hmm. nothing around it. It's it's really really nice and well kept and everything so a tragedy yeah i've only been there once um when i was 18 and the family took a driving trip from dallas or did we drive no no we flew that time we went out to california and then rented a car and like drove to vegas sort of the family summer vacation and Mm -hmm. What I remember was there's like a public parking area that's off to the north of the beach that's sort of like up by the cliff side. And like there were trails that you could walk if you parked up there. There were like trails that went all around the cliff area and stuff. But I don't remember anything about the wetlands or the marsh area or if there was a state park entrance or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's just, it's weird because like, it's, it's not, I don't know. It's, it's such a different part of the coast, you know, because it's, it's so well kept. Mm -hmm. There's not like restaurants and stuff. Even like Laguna is kind of cool. The, they've got, you know, old beach town kind of cafes and stuff all over the place. And then to get to the beach, you really got to go kind of, you know, down a, hike or whatever um but it's built up and then huntington like the city part is you've got just huge like uh tillies which is essentially pack sun like you know two-story shopping (laughs) dining all that kind of stuff so the huntington state beach area right right where it busted is the most like pristine kind of nature area of the coast at least in this area this region um so, I mean, you you see, like, dolphins there all the time. Um, I'm sure there's sharks all over the place. Oh, yeah. That, was it you who was sending me the drone stuff of yeah, the yeah. surfing and the, the great whites that are just swimming right there next to everybody? But it's only because now we've got drones that we see how close they are together all the time. <laughs> yeah. they. I mean, the sharks swim right under surfers and come up to surfers like all the time it is apparently happening all of the time so that's why you know shark encounters like i don't know the there's some like new pc term that they're using for shark attacks because they (laughs) apparently people like if a shark bumps into someone they had been calling that a shark attack oh god uh but yeah there's They're apparently like coming up and, you know, essentially sniffing servers all the time. Oh, yeah. And with with the how prevalent they are, it makes it that the actual like bite type of attack 
moments are even rarer than you thought they were because they're actually around you all the time. It's not like the rare occurrence where a shark is around you, you're going to get bit. Most of the yeah. time, the sharks are around you and you don't get bit. Yeah, the the statistics are like way you're you're twice as likely to get hit by lightning than uh, than be bit by a shark. So, you know, go swim in the ocean. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, Just not during a storm. <laughs> or during a stingray mating season. Yeah. <laughs> um, which just ended. Thank God. Mm. <laughs> what would we do if all of these stingrays died? Oh, yeah. Well, what about all the babies? Uh, I think they're gone. Do stingrays do they... live birth like sharks or are they eggs? I think they do. I mean, there are a couple birth. sharks that do eggs still, but most sharks are live birth. Yeah. It's a Silicon Valleyfication of sharks. Yeah. So in the research for this, um, I went back and was just looking at the legendary oil spills of my childhood, which is pretty much just the Exxon Valdez. Uh, that happened one year before you were born, Eric. So, yeah, I was conceived in the wake of it. <laughs> that, that's what, that was the 9-11 of, <laughs> of your conception when everyone was just <laughs> so distraught that they stayed in bed for weeks at a time <laughs> yeah. and had sex. Yeah, if you look at the the NOAA website too on the Exxon Valdez, I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but the first photo on their page for it, they're just the caption is "dead otter." <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's like well, all right, <laughs> party. Well, that that one was like uh, particularly graphic from a media standpoint because of how isolated the sound is where it happened up in Alaska and how that habitat had been, you know, very protected and the things that lived in that habitat were isolated to that sort of thousand kilometer stretch of coastline. So it uh-huh. was very easy to like just count all the dead otters and count all the dead dolphins and count all the dead orcas like as they were just washed up in the area because we're like, oh, look, they're all right here. Here they are. It's not like the deep water th- horizon in the Gulf of Mexico where it's out in the middle and you kind of are like, well, it's having an impact now because the slick has spread out into the Atlantic Ocean like the impact is this big glob and it's tough to tell exactly where things are getting impacted from yeah. and it's much easier to see when just there's a ton of oil covered creatures on the beach dying or dead yeah it's i mean this is second episode in a row now where fluid dynamics plays a major part mm-hmm. too because it's that's the the issue really with oil spills is it's like you can't predict where it's gonna you can kind of with like model tracking but the amount of oil required to kill a bird is the size of a dime yeah so it's really impossible to to track where it's gonna go to track where it is because again it's you know what it's if it's out on the open ocean how are you following it you know yeah and as especially where it spreads out yeah, that's the big issue is like the and this is similar with the Huntington Beach one right now, but like the Exxon Valdez right after the spill as the because um, oil is a hydrocarbon, it's less dense than water. I mean, you probably did the 
science experiment in grade school where you mixed, you know, vegetable oil and water together and you watched them separate and the vegetable oil floated on top of the water in the bottle or in the bucket or whatever you were doing that science experiment in. Um, but the idea is that that it doesn't just stay like if the oil starts as a big glob that's floating on the surface because it doesn't, you know, want to sink in the water. Um, that, you know, you say that glob on the top of the surface is maybe like in half an inch thick or an inch thick. Well, it doesn't take long for that to spread out and it's not sinking down into the ocean yet. It's not even like getting into the water table yet over the first, you know, few weeks, it just spreads out. So the same volume of oil that was spilled just gets a thinner and thinner and thinner coating on the surface of the water. And as that happens, um, it's like stretching out, you know, a piece of dough, but at an exponential rate. So the Exxon Valdez was expanding at like half a football field per second at a portion <laughs> of the spill because of you go from a big thick glob and as that thins out and you get this almost like molecular thick sheen that's on the top of the water but that sheen as it keeps spreading out and spreading out it's not like separating itself from the original patch it's just the patch is becoming extremely large as the spread out happens and that's caused by like the heat of the sun baking down on top of it during the day the evaporation the temperature of the water can all affect the rate at which that sort of spread happens um, but it's happens very rapidly and it doesn't, at least in the first few weeks after an oil spill, it doesn't start breaking down any of the, um, atomic components or the molecular components of the hydrocarbons in the oil. So they don't, they haven't started to dissipate or sink into the water table or anything yet. It's just this same, the same amount of material now being stretched over like square miles. Yeah. The weird thing, too, with oil, and that's, you know, that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this one, too, because I am I know oil spills are bad, but I have no clue what is actually going on. Well, I didn't. Now I do. Yeah. Now I know everything. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I didn't understand, though, that the there is evaporation of the oil itself. Yeah. Like there's components within it that do evaporate and go into the air. And all which, the best parts evaporate, right? <laughs> yeah. All yeah. the good parts of the oil get evaporated into the atmosphere and it just helps. It helps, you know, our climate problem. <laughs> the I should have understood that because how else could I smell it if there isn't, you know, particles in the air? But yeah, it uh it evaporates and bad bad things happen from that evaporation that's why it's not great to huff gasoline but it also a psa from riding the taurus we, we've discovered now this week it's bad to huff gasoline <laughs> you may like the smell but stay away um the evaporation causes the oil that remains to become really thick and that's like what washes up on the beach. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing too with Huntington uh, Huntington Beach. I mean, really any beach in Southern California. There's so much shipping that comes through and the way that sort of the coastline is shaped around this region, 
the ships just line up off the coast. Yeah. Especially now with all of the shipping delays and everything. They're just sitting there for weeks. And we've just got, you know, tar <laughs> constantly on the beach washing up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they call it tar balls, but it it's just like little black balls that wash up. It kind of kind of looks like a rock. So you're like, I don't know, is that a shell or whatever? But if you step on it, it's just stuck on your foot. Yeah. Like you can't get it off. Or you, or you pick it use. up because you thought it was a rock that you were going to throw back into the ocean or like a cola nut or something from a tree. Yeah. And it's a tar ball. And then it's like the smell is stuck on your hand for the next five days. No matter how hard you wash, <laughs> you can't get it off. Yeah. Uh, my sister would walk on the beach quite often and she would come home almost every time and have to like get our canola oil to like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know separated from her foot um but it's that washes up then you have the other parts of oil that separate out into really small you know globules and those then start to dissipate within the water and go everywhere (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it was kind of alarming too to read how much oil goes in the ocean every year yeah um and from how many various sources <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's crazy so the um not everything is from an oil spill in fact most of it is not from an oil spill we have 343 million gallons of oil that enter the ocean every year uh, everybody's favorite oil in the ocean measuring statistic is the olympic size pools um, <laughs> because so, every, everyone in their mind can immediately go, oh, I know exactly what the volume of an Olympic-sized pool is. How, yeah. how? Please measure that in Olympic-sized pools. That is 519.69 Olympic-sized pools. Put end-to-end, <laughs> that's 16.15 miles long of swimming. Mm. Um, that's how many Olympic-sized pools. But I also thought that's not what our listeners have in their mind what they have in their mind is the -the run-of-the-mill 15-foot diameter above ground pool yeah so that is 50 or i'm sorry 86,725 above ground pools that is if every single person in haltom city owned two above ground pools so just (laughs) haltom city as it is that's how much oil goes in the ocean each year and uh the uh the like almost half of it is not from any sort of man-made or technological disaster or anything like that that's the other interesting thing to me when uh, doing the research on this that all across the ocean like we talked about in our plate tectonics episode you've got openings where you have subduction zones and the plates are separating apart and these things open up to uh areas to release the the hot internal area of the earth into the ocean so we talked about before like lava plumes and uh and you know uh, geothermal dikes and vents and stuff under the ocean that give all this crazy amount of heat and toxicity into the ocean and there's all these extremophile creatures that live around them and stuff but that's Mm -hmm. also happening with oil as it seeps out of the 
um, subducted crust into the ocean uh, through these little cracks. So all across the ocean, all over the planet, in every hemisphere, you have these little fissures places where little, you know, bubbling dikes of oil are seeping out of the lower crust out into the bottom of the ocean. And that's pretty much what makes up almost half of the oil that's released into the oceans every year. Um, yeah. And but because it's not it's not like all coming from one central location. There's not like one big punctured hole in the Pacific Ocean where all the oil is seeping through. So since it's dispersed across the entire planet and none of these are like roaring geysers of oil, um, it is such that all of the environmental habitat around them has been able to adapt to that. And then you have like high collections of certain types of bacteria that specifically digest the hydrocarbons of the oil. Um, and that's sort of become their, uh, you know, their Mecca or their, their little haven for survival is like, they've carved out a niche around all these little seepage points all around the globe. So there's not really, those don't necessarily have the same effect as, deep water horizon in the Gulf of Mexico or a oil tanker crashing because it hit a reef or whatever, because those are going to be very concentrated spills. Yeah. And the thing too, like it sounds weird that there's bacteria eating the hydrocarbons, but I mean, hydrocarbons are just hydrogen and carbon yeah. in various configurations. Just lattice them up. <laughs> Much like uh, carbohydrates are carbon and hydrogens, you know, in different various combinations. So you need carbon, you need hydrogen to operate. Any living thing does. So it's, they're just able to break these down and not have the toxic effects from, you know, uh, I guess most of these, I'm sure there's maybe certain types of oil. Cause that's the other thing. There's the oil all around the earth is different concentrations mm -hmm. of these things. Like the oil in the Gulf of Mexico was didn't have as high of concentration of the it was still bad, but did not have as high a concentration of the toxic nature of oil as the Exxon Valdez mm -hmm. spill did. The one up there, that type of oil was is full of <laughs> the the volatile uh, you know components and the i forget the other name of it the pahs they call that they call super... that one the slang for it is like bunker fuel or something like it's the extra thick globulous tarry oil i guess and the one in the gulf of mexico is not as not as viscous and that all comes down to the makeup of it um, so the 12% is from accidental spills from ships and spills are happening like all the time. Yeah. It's, uh, they're just much smaller, so they don't make news. Right. And um, we have certain amounts of protection off of American coasts yeah. of, so we don't necessarily encounter the, uh, intercoastal highways of the shipping lanes nearly as much, unless you live in a place like, you know, Alaska or California, um, you, there's not as much of the, a chance where you're going to see it. Whereas if you live in like, uh, Malaysia or India or, mm -hmm. you know, those areas, 
you're getting a lot there's way less restrictions on the <laughs> intercoastal waterways and uh those things are just like more right in your backyard if it happens um three percent from extraction and then 37 percent from operational discharges from ships and land-based sources so that's that's pretty nuts uh, but the other thing I want to know how much of that 3% when I was reading it, cause they talk about it like, uh, oh yeah, you know, it used to be more of a practice that ships would just have to like dump their dirty waste fuel that they can't use anymore. And there was like, uh, compliance or regulations on how much they could do every year. But what I want to know is how much of that 3% is actually made up of the, uh, dumps that are done by the United States military. So oh, yeah. like whenever, you know, the Navy or the Air Force or the Marines are, you know, nearing their end of fiscal year and they know that they've budgeted so much oil and fuel and things to power all of their war machines and yet they haven't spent it all. Like they still got 20% in the reserve to make sure that next year's budget doesn't get cut by 20%, they've got to use it before the end of the fiscal year. So you fly, they fly these giant planes over the ocean and they just dump that jet fuel and oil and everything into the water. The ships just dump loads of fuel that they don't use to make sure that they can have it budgeted for next year so that they can then dump it all again because they didn't use it. Yeah. So I want to know how much of that 3% is made up of just military industrial complex dumping. 37% is the operational discharge. Okay. So it's it's a huge percentage. But the weird thing now, the problem with like researching this, uh, you really find like the you really find the you know, sources. Yes. The the bias because you have you know, the oil industry makes so much money. Um, so I'm not trying to uh, discount this. The, the 343 million gallons of oil in the ocean, the, the normal natural amount is, as you're saying, understandable. It's spread out. Um, it would be great if that was 100% of the oil in the ocean. But 343 million gallons uh, is nothing compared to how much gas the U.S. runs on the U.S. alone uses 840 million gallons of oil a day. Yeah. So it's it's also like, you know, one, the ocean's big. Two, uh, the country's big. Uh, but three, you don't want these concentrated parts of it. So that's also like the, the military dumping it is. Sure, they're flying a plane, so it's not all in one spot, but it's not great. Right. Um, but the number of oil spills by tankers has gone down significantly. Um, I was watching, uh, I guess during the pandemic, Canada decided to make some make some content. <laughs> so they, they put on uh, what they called Fed Talks, where they had different federal agencies give their own oh, TED nice. Talks. Um, it would be great if they got sued. Like... <laughs> uh, but in, so I was watching this, 30 minutes of this guy who was like working for the fisheries department or whatever. Um, from the, in the seventies, there were 78.8 spills per year. Yeah. And, it's, and those companies were basically like expected to self-regulate. 
too, even with all the spills that happen, like the uh, like with the Exxon Valdez, like the the story of that was that Exxon lobbied to have the ability to drill and then also move the oil in those waterways uh, a decade earlier. And they promised, you know, the governments that we're going to have double hold uh, vessels and we're going to have all these tugboat systems that basically pilot the boats through these narrow channels so that they won't run aground and we're going to have planes that are flying over this area constantly like targeting all the boats to make sure that they're in compliance and that they're not leaking anything when they go through the area and of course just like anything because it wasn't like uh, an actual law it wasn't like an actual um, prescription done by the government that said you must do this upon and if you don't these will be the penalties because they lobbied to do it and it was like a good faith lobbying effort of saying hey you let us do you let us you know move oil here this is all the things we'll, we promise to do and so everyone was like oh man that's a great promise thanks for promising that <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so but it only takes like 10 years for all of those safety checks and everything to completely like deteriorate and everyone's like so when you read the stuff about the trials on the exxon valdez like everyone's like yeah i mean i guess there was a protocol we were supposed to be doing with the tugboats and stuff but like no one had done that in the last five years and i was never trained on it so it's not it wasn't my responsibility that i wasn't the guy who went out on the tugboat to make sure that the thing didn't run aground and yeah you know, no, like simple stuff, like no speed limit was ever set for the shipping channel. So like, uh, if it becomes to Exxon's advantage to be like, we've got to go through here so fast. Like, I don't care how hard it is to navigate these waters. You got to go so fast because the more ships we can move, the more money we can make. And so you had like, the pilots of the ship being like, ah, yeah, I was very uncomfortable with how fast we had been doing this for a couple years. And there had been a, quite a few close calls, but then they just told me to drive even faster and I didn't want to lose my job. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, I mean, everything comes down to, to the market, huh? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Um, you know, this one, maybe it was like, I don't, I don't know exactly why the Exxon Valdez, obviously it was the biggest oil spill in the history of the nation, at least. Until Deepwater Horizon. Yeah. And so I understand why it was such big news. So I don't know if it was like the, it was also the reason for the Oil Pollution Act in 1990. Yeah. Um, I, you know, probably, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly. And so... With that, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration (NOAA) has they help you know with like the doing the research to prove the extent of the damage and all that kind of stuff. Over the last thirty years, they've been able to recover nine billion dollars from the oil industry. In nineteen eighty nine. Exxon alone made a profit of $3.81 billion, and that includes all of the money they spent 
doing like the oil cleanup. <laughs> right. And then they fought uh, the government for 15 years to not pay anything to any of the people who lived along the shoreline in Alaska whose complete <laughs> livelihood that, was decimated. <laughs> that amount was $92 million. Yeah. And they fought it until 2015. And Obama was like, yeah, it's fine. I Remember who, who brought big back big oil? That was me, folks. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like Exxon for the longest time had tried to get them to settle for $25 million for damages. There, yeah. There's a good, uh, one of the very first you're wrong about podcasts is on the Exxon Valdez. And it's really good because a lot of it is about the trial portion, not necessarily about like uh, the scientific function of, you know, what happens when oil gets in water, but it's about the livelihoods of the people and how Exxon beat them down by, uh, forcing them to, you know, litigate for so long and how the court system in the United States is intentionally set up to not pay out damages to people who have been harmed by large corporations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's very funny. So I've been listening to, to the um, Hell of Presidents mm -hmm. from uh, my favorite my favorite podcaster, not counting you. Um <laughs> Or Tony, and it's it's very interesting because I didn't quite understand the setup of the Constitution. Have heard for years, and have just intuitively understood that it favored you know property holders and everything. Um, but the whole point of the government here <laughs> was set up one only land owning white men because they figured they're the only people that have a stake yeah. in whether or not they, this government the only ones who have exists. a vested interest in being a citizen <laughs> yeah which you know it kind of i'd always been confused because i was like surely they didn't just say we're gonna do this because we're racist <laughs> right right like there was reasoning behind it it's not a good reason it, it was racist reasoning but you obviously thought oh these people just they don't have the human acumen that a, that a white male landowner does. Otherwise, right. yeah, they'd, they'd be white male landowners too. I mean, just look <laughs> yeah, at how exactly. it's worked out, guys. <laughs> and then the reason that they were like, well, we need people who have a stake in this. The, the reason there was a stake is because they were thinking, well, we need to compete economically with the European countries, mm -hmm. which means we need business. So it's entire which again i had intuitively just been like yes okay but had never had it explained in that way um so yeah the whole <laughs> governmental structure is set up to prefer business over people's interests when it comes to things that are just like literally killing people <laughs> yeah it's the incentivization because you want to keep incentivizing more business opportunities in the future because the calculus is such that, yeah, maybe business harms some people, but if we keep the opportunities for business going great into perpetuity, then it'll the the uh, the rising tide will lift all boats you know famous right. famous reagan line type of type of concept we have to keep yeah. the opportunity doors open and the barriers at access to those opportunities low for business people cuz they're going to create everything the livelihood for everyone else 
Yeah, if you empower the businesses, then you don't really have to govern. Yeah, exactly. They're the ones keeping society running. Um, so the Deepwater Horizon as well, uh, very interesting because it <laughs> was really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they had an $8.8 billion settlement for restoration that was reached in 2016. Uh, six years BP, after, the, <laughs> six years right. after the spill, after six years of litigation following the disaster. <laughs> yeah. In total, they paid 15 billion in cleanup costs and 20 billion in economic damages. But in 2010, their annual revenue was 309 billion. Right. And I want to consider worth the, 180 billion. The other sketchy thing on the cleanup cost thing, you sent me that, um, uh, that Smithsonian, was it Smithsonian article? Um, but the, the other side of the, of the cleanup issue when it comes to the financial deal is if of the 15 billion that BP claims that goes to cleanup, because it's going to environmental cleanup type of disaster recovery expenses, that just provides them, I believe like a complete other tax haven on any of those expenditures like that. If you're looking for ways to not pay taxes on $15 billion, you know, say that it went to disaster cleanup type of thing. Jeez. So, yeah. like, there's an incentive that there is a profit motive incentive to pay for cleanup of these disasters. One, like the articles talks about how it's basically just uh, disaster cleanup theater because it makes mm-hmm. people feel good when they see, like, a bunch of people in uh, blue nurses outfits like trying to clean oil off of a off of a bird's feathers even though like that bird's probably going to die in less than a week even after it's all been cleaned up. Yeah. Um like that that provides that sort of okay, at least somebody's doing something about it. Now I feel better. But I there's I I think the motivation is not just solely for the uh for for that uh, sort of PR benefit, the the motivation is also, hey, this is a big write off. <laughs> yeah, it's the cleanup part of it. Um, obviously, you know, Dawn is like a huge, like they they put ducks on their yeah bottles for years. I don't know if they still do. It's their main advertising, and now they've also doubled back and said that the plastic on the bottles that uh, the dawn is inside of is recycled plastic that has been recovered from the ocean as well. So it's like this big, uh, total, total reusable, recycle, clean the oceans product. At least that's how they market it. Well, it's going great because whenever it's used to clean the oil off of a bird, uh, there's research that suggests that it's more harmful to their immune system than the oil that's collecting in their livers and kidneys. Yeah. Um, so, Two things. One, um, whenever a bird comes into contact with oil, it is likely going to die. There's there's no normal survivability. Uh, they don't return to like even good breeding health. They don't. They can't really fly anymore. Um, the majority of them die. There's like less than one percent of birds that will be cleaned and go on living a full life. They all you know have shorter life expectancies. Everything like that. Except for the now, one outlier case where all those penguins in Antarctica got in that 
spill and they cleaned them off yeah. and then they like 90 percent of them survived but i think that also has to do with it being a very isolated habitat and they're not flying birds and you know, there's right. other reasons why they were able to survive that whereas a lot of the other marine uh fowl cannot could not survive the thing that i'm wondering is if it is removing their immune system essentially um is cleaning off birds from oil spills leading to a potentially worse bird flu <laughs> epidemic <laughs> well hopefully they don't they don't uh you know they if they if they die off then they're potentially not passing down any compromised immune system traits to any of offspring so but they they're they can just be sick yeah and all be sick together sick and, and pass it on yeah yeah but the the other thing the other you know cleaning off birds doesn't do anything uh in 2002 there was a tanker ship that spilled like the bunker fuel like the exxon valdez type of fuel um it killed three hundred thousand seabirds and of the ones they cleaned only a few hundred made it back into the wild Mm -hmm. so it's the amount that it takes to kill is so small and there's essentially nothing you can do like the this researcher in the article um she's from germany her advice to the bp spill was to just kill all of the birds that they saw yeah that would be uh, the humane thing to do and the environmental yeah. thing to do. Um, so I was really wondering, like, how does oil kill <laughs> things? A normal thought. And because, again, I have, you hear it's bad, but how is it bad? Yeah. Um, so we've got essentially two main groups of chemicals in oil, um, as we already sort of mentioned. You've got the uh, VOC, which are the volatile, um, trying to Google search here on the fly, Mm -hmm. the volatile organic compounds, Mm -hmm. should have been able to think of that, Uh, and then the PAHs, which are the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, The volatile ones are the ones that evaporate, and they go into the air, and, you know, that's what gives it the smell. they're, some of them are acutely toxic when inhaled. Mm-hmm. So at the site of a fresh spill, it is very dangerous to be breathing that air. Um, but they evaporate, so it's kind of gone fairly quickly as long as the oil reaches the surface. There is an issue with it potentially with the water cycle being the evaporation over the ocean. And then you have clouds that are loaded with this these toxic volatiles that mix with rainwater and then they can go back over land or go back over even another portion of the ocean and then the rain falls and then you're like oh wow why is this section of uh fish or coral reef just randomly like dying faster than the other parts are and that's can be that can be transferred through the water cycle from the evaporation of these volatiles as well it's great because it's been raining this week here. <laughs> so good to know. It's going to be great for the wine crop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. Yes. Yeah. Economic impact again. This wine's getting me drunker than usual. 
Um, and then the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Uh, these are your run-of-the-mill, everybody knows, naphthalene, uh, phenethylene, and fluorine, you know. Um, we learned those in kindergarten. Yeah. And those persist in the environment for years. That's like the very thick, toxic stuff. Um, what's interesting is there hadn't been a whole lot of research into how oil affects things, like in the ocean, um, so surprisingly, the BP oil spill was a huge, uh, I don't know. It was platform. a huge research experiment <laughs> for lots of things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so they were able to study like 21 different fish, uh, 12 different invertebrates, plankton, freshwater turtles, because sea turtles are protected. You can't do experiments on them. Uh, so yes, they killed all of these things in these experiments. Mm. Uh, four species of birds. And they were all like Gulf Coast centric um, animals. Now we, of course, know like we hear about all of the things that happen, but you get a lot of developmental abnormalities um, in early life stage fish. You have heart and spinal defects, uh, which go on to either kill them or cause them to not be able to reproduce. Mm -hmm. Older fish have stunted growth, immune system problems, impaired swimming abilities. Um, their fins deteriorate that was yeah, the crazy thing just, like they just like evaporate like the fins just break apart <laughs> like they're, yeah. they're not even part of their body anymore um it's also oil is becomes much more reactive to uv light uh and it is 10 to 100 times more toxic to transparent animals in the presence of natural sunlight and almost every you know larval stage sea creature is transparent all the plankton all the e even like the algae and stuff at certain stages is is translucent mm -hmm. um in turtles uh it causes damage to their dna um so you give turtles cancer so again i was like well what even happens like down on the micro level the molecular level and turns out it's it's nothing crazy it just causes like it goes in and is able to strip or add it does a redox reaction with macromolecules the the toxic chemicals in oil go in and essentially bind to these larger molecules like dna or like you know, the proteins that are on the outside of your cells and causes, when we're talking about protein, especially DNA too, the shape to warp so that it doesn't code correctly, it doesn't operate correctly, and it essentially just, like, gums up like oil mm -hmm. uh, the cell function and causes cancer in the fact that by warping DNA, it codes differently whenever you're replicating and then that can you know screw up the the self-regulation process so your cells just start to grow mm -hmm. uh non-stop so it's it's like such a basic <laughs> chemical reaction it's like the basic chemical reaction but it screws up everything at that level yeah when i, I was i was uh, reading an article on on it and it was explaining how when those combined to already you know existing uh, molecular compounds inside of your body 
basically like the ends of different compounds in your body are ready to receive you know, other things to make them more complex. They can plug into those Lego pieces on, you know, either side. But the toxic nature of the uh, molecules that are present from the oil, basically it binds to those open ends, but then blocks it such that the thing that's supposed to bind to it won't bind to it anymore type of deal. Like it's a, it's, it's a blocking Lego piece that doesn't fit any of the other Lego pieces. Yeah, it, it, seriously just gums up everything so it either stops normal function or like causes it to go haywire Mm -hmm. um which you know uh not surprisingly but like any toxic chemical does those things um but it's it's like oil is almost (laughs) like specified to do this yeah well, and if you just think of the basic nature of like uh, life, if, uh, you know, you're, the majority of your body is water and you're ingesting mm-hmm. things that is inherently hydrophobic <laughs> molecule yeah. structures, you're putting stuff that is going to get in between all of the water molecules in your body and force them apart in a way that it doesn't it's not natural to how your living organism works and that's going to be the same with any living organism on the planet yeah there's there's also like the the uh, the amount to there's there's like non-polar which is um you know oily then you do have some that are have like polar sections to it so it would attract things with charge like water and that type obviously is the type that like disperses within the water and that is the more toxic aspect of it Mm -hmm. so it's it's also more the more toxic stuff is more present and not traceable because it breaks down into such small amounts you don't have enough bacteria in the world to break that all down if you have a spill um now that was the other interesting thing on the the chemistry side of the, what is it, the cortex, cortrex, what is the chemical called that they use to try to disperse the, the oil? Oh. And, uh, but yeah. the, they, they hadn't, like they'd used it in other spills around the world um, earlier in time than the Deepwater Horizon spill, but it was, had already been studied to the point where like, uh, I think it was the Nordic countries had completely banned it, and like the UK was in the process of evaluating if it should be banned when uh, the BP oil spill happened. And so, through the United States military and BP organized to try to test out these um, disbursement chemicals on the on the oil patches that were floating on the surface in the Gulf. You know, you basically fly a plane over it and you drop the chemicals just like you're crop dusting plants. Um, But in order to even try this, like the sea has to be extremely calm and you you have to have a very targeted area of the oil spill in order to even attempt it. But the idea is you put these certain kind of chemicals on the oil that one side is basically hydrophilic and one side is hydrophobic when you look at the individual molecule. And so one side will bind to a piece of oil and the other side will bind it to a piece of water. And if you do that on the molecular scale, 
you know, over a large area, then enough little microscopic pieces of oil will bind to water and it will all disperse, you know, throughout a large portion of the ocean. That's the idea. So it seemed to kind of work, you know, from the surface level um, analysis of it. But once they started to do more of the kind of deep water analysis, as the dispersal happens, those toxic elements fall deeper into the water table, which then puts them just blanketing the reefs and, you know, other living organisms that live more on the bottom of the ocean, the, you know, bottom dwellers. And that caused a huge die-off, bigger than the die-off that was happening from just the oil that was loosely floating around before it was dissipated. And in fact, the... Uh, they measures of like making it 80 to 100 times more toxic by adding these chemical agents to cause the dispersal than if you had just let the oil sort of degrade on its own, um, which then led Europe and the UK to completely ban its use. I don't think the US has banned its use yet, but, um, it's, you know, they're still like like ideas, I guess. <laughs> there's money to be made <laughs> there's money to be made but yeah um the idea that you can just use simple chemistry to break down the hydrocarbon compounds of the oil into smaller simpler forms and then the dispersal throughout a large body of water will make it so that it doesn't impact any life is uh is not real that is not any kind of factual science that is going to be used to clean up any future oil spills because it actually makes things worse yeah and the the you know that one read one side is hydrophilic and one side is hydrophobic that's also just like soap yeah so it is it's it's just adding this thing that makes it it break down and can dissolve into the water but then you know that's like the article uh title the smithsonian one is like why do we pretend to clean up oil spills because it's the <clears throat> the fisheries guide that i was watching the fed talk um he was like you know well of course people think like we're just putting the oil back into the water but we're able to break it down and then by breaking it down, it can be broken down by bacteria and stuff. And it's like, well, that's not really, yeah. <laughs> like you're putting the dangerous parts back into the water. And yeah. And that the cortex chemical or whatever was discovered that it actually killed off any bacteria that, <laughs> that actually digest the oil. <laughs> so, yeah. so if you were trying to do like a double whammy, like, Ooh, we'll make it disperse so that it's easier for more bacteria to do it. Well, you just killed any and all bacteria that were around in the area that could have digested the oil you know you 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 kind of mess that one up too yeah that's why you know soap is so good for getting rid of bacteria yeah exactly <laughs> um they don't they also don't have really very many promising new technologies coming out because the the way you clean it up is you scoop it together and then suck the oil water out and you get like almost 80 percent water so you're just getting rid of water essentially <laughs> yeah um and the the new technologies they have are like like oil or chemical booms so instead of needing boats to push stuff around you can just drop this chemical around so it essentially pools in one area but then you still suck it out mm -hmm. they've got 
this like nanofibrillated cellulose. That um, was cool. Yeah, that's but that's also like I saw it's being researched for tons of different uses like food packaging and stuff yeah and we're getting into like the future nanofiber tech stuff that we talked about with space elevators and everything like it's really cool on like the microscopic scale in the lab when you put a nanofiber thing together with these perfect you know carbon chain built you know to specificity in a lab so there's not one break of any molecule in the link but how do you scale that up and you make it such that the those molecular chains are perfect in the in the big manufacturing scale of this because if it's not then the whole thing is compromised that's like the big drawback to the to the nanofiber technology yeah it's able to suck up 50 times its body weight in oil yeah it's like it's an awesome sponge specifically for oil mm-hmm. but <laughs> the energy consumption just to make it like Okay, what are we doing here? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that that is it's a cool idea, you know, if you think of if you could create a paper towel or a sponge that you could just lay over the surface of the water that would not soak up water but only soak up oil. And they've tried they like do this with natural things, like there's different like clay sponges and things that are made out of like dried straw. And they use these in the Gulf of Mexico and Deepwater Horizon as like experiments to see like, well, we'll make these big, you know, clay things and we'll use them as sponges and see if they soak up mostly oil or mostly water or, you know, an even combination of both. And they did it with straw. The issue was, though, they suck up way more. They soak up way more water than they do oil. Those sort of natural remedies. There is like a new one too that I saw was is like birch wood, like chipped up birch wood that's been chemically treated in a way such that it only wants to soak up the less dense material, but the more dense water molecules can't be soaked up by the birch wood chips. Um, so I mean that. That's basically the same idea as like if you have an oil spot from your car leaking oil in your garage and you want to clean that up, you go and like you rub kitty litter on it or you put like some old wood chips on it and the wood chips soak up that oil from your from the concrete so you don't have the oil spot anymore because you can't like pressure wash an oil spot off of concrete because the water and the oil don't mix and there's no way to like actually do that. So, so that's where does that oil come idea. from? Oh yeah, so that's the that's the other big thing uh, when you're doing this research is there's like uh, there's like lots of cool little even like accessible for kid videos that are put out by you know like Exxon, PragerU, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's and it's, and so there are all these like cute little videos about how oil is made and what we use coal and natural gas for and stuff, but they always are like weird because they show like dinosaurs as cute they're trying dinosaurs. to explain like fossil fuels and um I want to do a little bit of debunking when it comes to that type of stuff because. I think just when anything is called a fossil fuel, like in in most people's just word association that they do in their head when you say fossil, like immediately people think of like a T-Rex skeleton. Like they don't think of plankton or or like ferns or something. They they think of like a they think of fucking dinosaurs. Um and 
no, I will, I'm here to tell you now, no dinosaurs are oil. There's not one dinosaur that turned into oil. It's not been enough time. <laughs> they haven't been compressed in a dense enough layer with their bones and their organic matter to have turned into coal, oil, or natural gas. Dinosaurs are not fossil fuels. Even though there are fossils of dinosaurs, those fossils have not been around long enough to have turned into any type of non-renewable energy source. Um, so where that comes from is... Two billion years ago, so we're talking way before one and a half billion years before dinosaurs. Um, you had a huge amount of the earth was water, but not just oceans, it was a lot of swampy, uh, jungly kind of marshlands everywhere. And inside of those water tables, you had these very small organisms living, mostly plankton, different types of plankton and algae. And as those biomasses died, they all sank to the bottom of the ocean or the lake or the swamp that they were in. And sediment from that same lake and ocean like slowly built on top of them. And that created layers and layers of pressure over millions of years building up that was condensing and putting these organisms decomposing bodies under heat and pressure stress. And over that time, um, the organic matter, when it's condensed and pressurized that much, will turn into oil. Or if it's um, under even more pressure and heat, will turn into natural gas. So oil and natural gas are fossil fuels that are made from actual organic creatures like small animals like plankton um the now coal it is a fossil fuel but it's made differently coal is from the dry part of the land where you had ferns and leaves and plants and stuff all fall on the ground and as like layers of dirt built up on the on the surface of the ground those decomposing plant matter that got compressed into and heated up and when you compress the decomposing plant matter you turn that into coal um, and that so coal is different than oil and natural gas, but they're all, I guess, considered fossil fuels and all of them are non-renewable because to do this process to create one more drop of oil would take way more than one human lifetime. We're talking millions of years to compress and pressurize and put these organic material under heat to create this fuel source. So. All of the oil then, naturally, that's why it's most of it is underground because you're talking it's the decomposing layer of beings that were around 2 billion years ago. So you've got a lot of, you know, new sediment and ocean moval, and oceans moving and plate tectonics and everything that have moved all those globs and reserves all around the planet over the last 2 billion years. So that's what we're extracting and the the reason why it's so harmful to the environment and the reason why we find it so useful for the industrial revolution and powering our cars and our cities and everything and why even still today it you get a lot more bang for your buck out of it for electricity usage and everything than you do from renewable sources is because of how long it took to compress all of that living organic energy into these much smaller packages. So 
the pressure, the heat, and the time took all of the potential energy that was inside these decomposing masses and squoze them down into the smallest possible molecule um, compartment of fuel that it could. And so now when we extract that 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 juice out of the ground, you're you have the power of millions of organisms inside like a glass of oil. And you're taking that energy that would have powered the lives of millions of organisms and then you're refining it and putting it in your car so that your car can go, you know, 40 miles on one gallon of gasoline. So it's it's like conservation of energy, a lot of basic science stuff, but it's I I just want to sort of make sure people don't think that oil is made from dinosaurs. <laughs> I think the I mean you can burn anything pretty much, so it makes sense that why that's more a more efficient's not the right word, but a more densely packed energy source. Right, right. Much more densely packed than like burning wood. That's why if mm-hmm. uh, if you're powering a locomotive at the turn of the century, you're gonna want to burn coal to get that engine hot to run your steam engine, not a a load of wood. It's not going to burn as hot. It's not going to burn as long. And you're not going to have as much energy transfer from just taking a tree, a fresh tree that's cut down and burning that as you would taking a two billion year pressurized piece of coal that's just the size of your hand and throwing that in the fire is going to yield much more of an energy release than the log from a tree. Yeah. Um, Or you could just make charcoal, which I found very cool how they make charcoal charcoal take a take a tree you you put it in a pot and then you heat it up so that all the water and everything evaporates and then you got just the burnable stuff oh there you go um you're making trees smaller so you're only burning the parts of the trees that you need for fuel yeah um so that's that's my that's my bit um yeah. It's it's sort of the I think the the takeaway from me especially from this article just a quote from it is just that the the oil cleanup and everything it's almost like a societal I don't know. It's like the TSA after 9/11. <laughs> yeah. It's basically yeah. what mean, it is. Like don't you got to save the airline industry, we'll give people this illusion of security so that they'll feel safe enough to fly. But right. none of the, like the TSA wouldn't have stopped 9-11 from happening. <laughs> That's no. the same. It's like, okay, cool. We all have to do this. And we've all been doing it for 20 years now, but. They're too busy yelling at people for knowing a different <laughs> language. I'm glad we all feel safe to fly again. <laughs> <laughs> but the the quote from it is just that, it's difficult for us to acknowledge that, you know, society struggles to acknowledge the limits of technology or the consequences of energy habits. And that's where the state of marine oil spill response sits today. It creates a little more than an illusion of a cleanup. And that that really captures it, that it's the cleanup is almost like society trying to feel better about its constant consumption Mm -hmm. that is causing all of these things. Like (laughs) if we didn't run on oil, 
you wouldn't see sea turtles washing up dead, you know? Yeah. Um, but people don't. And, you know, obviously this takes much more than a few people discussing it in a room. Um, unless those people are lizard people. <laughs> it 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 takes like a a huge shift to get away from all of this. I fully realize that. But the cleaning up is just trying to feel better because there's no alternative yeah the it's it's easier to maintain the status quo but also like we've talked about with many other topics there's a human tendency to err to lean towards the easiest most intuitive solution where even though our intuition is terrible and we should not rely on it for anything. <laughs> like, yeah, we want to make a problem very simple because if we can make it very simple in our minds, then the solution is very simple and we can feel better because we feel like we've solved a problem. Um, and this happens with lots of issues. Like we had a school shooting yesterday here in, in Mansfield, at at, uh, at a high school. And, um, you know, the, the issue with school shootings has been ever since, you know, I was a senior in high school in 99 when Columbine happened. But the the idea that the mitigation efforts to this are not mitigating it. It's more uh, like uh, tr- trying to put Band-Aids on it or, or the, the illusion of solving the problem being, oh, well... I'm worried about my kids getting shot, so I'm going to move them to private school. Or I'm worried about my kids being in a public school environment in the city where there's more diversity because that's going to potentially cause more um, conflict. So I'm going to flee to a white flight suburban neighborhood and take my money, my taxes, and my children out of that school system. And instead of like actually addressing the problem of gun violence, you've now ignored that problem and then created an even worse problem inside of the schooling system where you've pitted uh, inner city public schools against suburban schools against private schools and you've removed funding from those from those schools that need it the most and you've removed the diversity of education the diversity of economic backgrounds of the people that go to those schools so that everyone can be reinforcing each other's you know, differences and reinforcing each other's flaws uh you've made a much more segregated problematic society by not addressing the problem that you were really worried about in the first place and that's the same thing that's going on here by allowing ourselves to be placated by feeling good by these cleanup efforts or oh bp's giving a billion dollars billions of dollars in settlement money to all the people on the gulf coast or whatever it is we allow ourselves to not actually address the issue. And mm-hmm. it's the same, you know, the, all of the organizations that are in charge of these cleanup efforts and in charge of doing the research for these cleanup efforts around the world are all funded by all of the major oil companies in the world. They are all, you know, completely in existence under the auspices of shell and exxon and mobile and sunco and you know all these major uh major industrial oil corporations it's not like these are like uh 
grassroots movements for environmental change or some watchdog that has been put in place by the government to keep eye on these oil corporations to make sure that they're following these very strict regulations for environmental purification. No, we let them be their own watchdog. (laughs) And then by having these companies that they that they police themselves with, then those are like somehow these give backs to society that then they can also, you know, they're, these aren't profit generation centers for us. Basically we write all this stuff off and I, I don't know. It's, it, it causes just more problems than it, than trying to actually solve the original one because the biggest, the biggest fear for them is the actual solution to this problem is figure out different ways to transport fossil fuels if you still need to transport them all over the world, but don't do it via pipelines or ships. And how are you going to, how do you solve that one? Yeah. No, it's when you've got all of them paying everybody, then you're not going to have any real solutions. But it's kind of like, I mean, with this, with the uh, school shootings too, it all, you know, I know people are, sort of saying that you can't it's like a gen z sort of uh trait i guess to just be like oh well that's a capitalism yeah (laughs) you've got like this really does all trace back to it because you have you know why if you're somebody who's like well i need to use a gas burning car uh because i don't want to have to like deal with hours of charging it because i don't want to be late to my job or I've got to have my kids have um, the best education and and thus put so much pressure on them mm-hmm. in the school. Uh, you know, the, the issue with gun violence is, of course, guns being available, but it's very, it's deeper than that. It's, it's because of the immense amount of pressure that if you don't do these things the way that you have to do them in order to get a job and survive, then you're just going to become homeless. You're going to die. Like having that as an option in society is what pushes all of these detrimental, you know, very harmful things on, on everybody and on the the planet. It's the, uh, it's, it's instead of, uh, instead of having the pressures be from like the top down such that Make it so bad that if any oil company had a had a disaster on any level of scale, make it so bad that basically the government would take over ownership of the company. Like that's the penalty for causing mm-hmm. uh, causing an environmental disaster. Like you, you, your board of directors is all fired, <laughs> and like for the next you know whatever two decades, the that is taken over by the government or something. If that was the penalty then you see the incentives change. But instead, rather, we incentivize people from the bottom up. We hold the lowest levels of society at gunpoint as we force them to walk off the plank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 ho- and so they're having to do everything they can to make sure that they know how to swim before they have to take that last step um, or, or otherwise they drown. Like that's a, it's one way to incentivize a society, (laughs) but I would, I kind of think that the other way might be more impactful and better for the livelihood of everyone else. Yeah. Yep. But you know, 
we'll get there when we get there, right? Yeah, because like we've always learned, it's all about our personal responsibility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I do better about my own personal recycling, then oil spills won't happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, of course, EVs are better than um, gas burning cars for emissions, uh, but the amount of oil used just to make a road yeah. is like immense. <laughs> what do you guys what do you guys think asphalt is? What yeah. what do you, what do you think tires are? When you like, what do you uh, yeah. It gets it gets it gets even more problematic when you think about the things that m- like not all this oil and everything is just for fossil fuel purposes to run our electric grid and all of that stuff. It's also to make all of these commodities that we then buy and sell to each other and then throw in the garbage after having them for a few months because you've got to have all that plastic and rubber and everything and all that's made from the same oil that's extracted from the ground that's leaking out of the deep water horizon trench and you know it's i don't know there there there's multiple problems but there's multiple uh incentives to not do anything about it because man it feels good to buy plastic shit on amazon yeah Yep, it's a it's a consumption issue. Everything's being consumed. All right. Well, I think we solved it. So good job, Left Eric. Left it on a, a happy note. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Until next week. Bye.